Welcome to this special episode of Frequency Matters. I'm Gary LaRue of Microwave Journal, here with Dave Slack, the Director of Engineering at Times Microwave Systems. Dave, welcome. Good morning, Gary. Good to be with you today. Well, today we want to tackle the topic of hypersonics, which has become a really hot topic in the news. So give us some background on hypersonics and what all the buzz is about. Yeah, hypersonics is kind of a, it's kind of a big deal. Um, I guess I guess the first thing that I would offer is just a really quick definition of terms. You know, sonic, for instance, is the speed of sound, and we all know supersonic. We've heard that for years, which which is when an aircraft um, transitions and goes faster than the speed of sound. Then there's transonic, which is where portions of an aircraft might exceed the speed of sound, like mm. a uh, like a rotary wing craft where the tips of the rotor blades might go faster than the speed of sound, but the aircraft itself is not. And then there's um, hypersonic. And and these these sonic terms are are chosen because it's the point where the physics of the aerodynamics changes a little bit and um, um, engineers have to change the way they do their design work. So there's below and above the, the sound barrier, there's some things that they have to account for. And the same thing happens at about Mach 5. Um, it, it's the energy levels are high. It starts to strip uh, uh, electrons off the atoms. It creates uh, plasma fields and things like that. It's a totally different environment. So they, so that's a line of demarcation between um, supersonic and hypersonic. In reality, the weapon systems that are, have caused all the buzz will go many, many times faster than that. They'll go 10, 15, 20, 25 times the speed of sound. They're, they're very, very fast, but for definition of terms, it all comes back to the to the physics. The other thing is is that hypersonics aren't new. It, it's it, they've been around for been around for seventy years or so. I mean, uh, generally speaking, any any ballistic missile that that goes more than 400, 500 miles or so, the the velocity that it takes to travel that far is going to put it into the hypersonic range. So. Hypersonics have been around since the end of World War II, since the mm -hmm. mid-40s. Um, the V-2 rockets traveled at hypersonic velocities. Um, Sputnik in 1959, the Apollo missions, the, uh, the a whole, whole range of things, the SpaceX rockets, they all go to hypersonic speeds. What those all have in common is they have a they have a ballistic path to them, which is a parabolic arc that's all set by the force of gravity and launch velocity. The path is very predictable. You can you can do the math backwards and know where it came from, and you can also know where it's going to land. So it's easy to defend again, and it's easy to to countermeasure because you know where it's coming from. The difference today is is that these these hypersonic vehicles are are steerable. You can actually move at those speeds, but you can maneuver and you can evade, and you don't know exactly where it's going to hit, and you don't know exactly where it came from, and uh, so it's it's a game changer. And that's this has been around since the 60s or 70s. You know, it was at the the leading edge of science, but it was basic science. It wasn't really practicable until the last 10 years or so. There's basically with the weapon systems. There's there's three categories to them. One is the one is the uh, the hypersonic ballistic missiles that we've talked about, where they launch them and then they just kind of uh, they find their path back to ground. And the more modern ones are are steerable somewhat. Um, then 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 there's the one that's getting the most buzz these days are the hypersonic glide vehicles, 
where they launched them. They launched them initially on that on that parabolic arc, on that ballistic arc. But then, you know, mid course, they can come down much lower in altitude and they can kind of glide across the atmosphere at a, at a relatively low atmosphere at hypersonic speeds. Um, so they're much more difficult to detect. You know, it, you know, if you're if you're 200,000 feet, you can be seen from a long way away. If you drop down to 10,000 feet or much lower altitude, um, you can't detect it until it's right on you. And literally, you may have minutes to react. So that's the game changer is that not only are they going at those speeds and they're maneuverable, but the time to react instead of 45 minutes or an hour could be three minutes, two minutes, something like that. So they're very difficult to defend against. And then the third category is a um, is a hypersonic cruise missile, which is a uh, you know which is actually a powered a powered vehicle with a scram jet or a supersonic ram jet, um, and that's that's really a game changer because it can travel at much lower altitudes, at much longer ranges, and it's and it's powered, and so it's not just gliding. So those are the three those are the three categories. Well, the reason it's a big deal is because the the United States, for example, projects power across the globe um, through the carrier fleet, and the carrier fleet, with its with its group of picket ships and submarines and the air cover that it has, is generally invulnerable today. But the, these hypersonic these hypersonic weapons uh, very easily could be a neutralizer. To the carrier fleet so it's very destabilizing geopolitically so that's that's where the buzz is coming from well thank you for that overview and a really good explanation of as you say where the buzz is coming from it sounds like a very destabilizing uh, weapons category and given the um the physics associated with hypersonic speeds and the extreme environmental conditions what kind of uh, challenges or emerging technologies has hypersonics created? So there's the there's the um, there's the getting up to speed, which has been like I say, the technology has been around since World War II. Um, it's the maneuverability is the is the real issue, and and electronics. So if you're if that missile is has been launched and it's on a glide path into its target wherever it is. Um, Every time it maneuvers a little bit, it loses energy. And when it loses energy, it loses range. Uh, when it loses energy, it also, that energy that it's lost has to be dissipated somewhere. And it's dissipated in terms of heat. So you have not only the heat from the friction slipping through the, uh, slipping through the airstream, but now you have this excess heat buildup because of, of maneuvering. Um, and that dealing with that heat is one of the, one of the big technical challenges. And also, also it's communicating, we, you know, we all know, we've all seen the smart weapons, you know, we've all seen how precise and accurate they are. And those require usually someone on the ground, identifying a target, communicating with that weapon and guiding it in. Well, at hypersonic speeds, these, these, these vehicles are surrounded by a plasma envelope. It's the reason the uh, space vehicles lose communications for a few seconds on, on reentry. Um, you know, it just shields it from the, the communication. So penetrating that so that you can communicate with this with this weapon and, and steer it is another big, uh, big technological hurdle. So it's basically it's driving it's driving everyone in the business to look at things that are smaller, lighter, 
and higher temperature. And, and smaller and lighter in the, in the aerospace business has always been a given, but these higher temperatures are really pushing the, the technical envelope quite substantially. So extend that to RF microwave technology and where, first of all, where does uh, RF microwave play on the weapon and uh, also its detection and defeat? So communicating, communicating with the weapon and steering it, like I said before, is one way. Um, there's also there's also on the drawing board the me the means to uh, swarm these weapons, to put several of them in the air and have them communicate with each other in a, in a coordinated fashion. So some sort of in-flight data link capability, which you probably would have a microwave carrier um, associated with it. Uh, in, in my view, the big the big way that RF the RF and microwave community will will participate, other than the onboard systems, are the detection and countermeasures. Um, the, a lot of the missile systems that are currently uh, used, and the um, you know the close in weapon systems and things like that, are all being adapted uh, to to countermeasure uh, to counteract the uh, hypersonic weapon systems, which means you know. Um, you know, detecting targets before, if you detected a target 300 miles out, you would have 20 minutes to react at, at hypersonic speeds, 300 miles, you may have two minutes. So a human being reacting is way too long. So it's going to be these weapon systems will use, you know, they're, they're ripe for artificial intelligence type things, um, computing power, and also also just the basic technology of radar and, and radar uh, radar technology specifically receiver sensitivity and and, and linearity because they tend to be um, they, they tend to be um, you know phased arrays so so the linearity across the frequency bands is, is important yeah so that's that's where I think uh, I think the countermeasures are really where the RF and microwave community will play. So do you have a sense of how you see the market evolving over the next few years as these, uh, I guess today, a lot of research and development turns into actual fielded programs? So about a year ago, the Chinese um, actually circumnavigated the globe and then brought a, a test flight down onto a target. Um, a really remarkable uh, event. What was concerning about it is what the Western, it's the Western world didn't detect it. They did not mm -hmm. notice it until it actually hit the target. Um, that was a bit of a Sputnik moment, if you will. That was a, uh, that was a wake up that, you know, we're, we, we've known we've been in an arms race on this for a while. The Western world has been largely passive for quite some time. They've been otherwise engaged in other parts of the world. Um, it's it's things like the Russians. The Russians have made some advances. The Chinese have now demonstrated real capacity. So the Russians have been at it longer. The Chinese are probably ahead technology-wise. Mm. Um, the U.S. and the Western allies are behind, but they're coming up to speed quickly. So this has become, in my view, a bit of a a bit of a Manhattan Project type of thing. Um, I know that the 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 armed services and the government development agencies are really are really imploring industry to develop these weapons, to develop these components and the technology underlying these weapons. Um, 
at almost a, a Cold War innovation climate scale very quick. So I expect that to continue. I expect to see a lot of money flooding into this space because it is the it is the Department of Defense's number one development pr priority right now. And that I, I don't see an end to that in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dave, for sharing your insight with us on this important topic. It uh, sounds like it's going to spur a lot of activity for the RF microwave industry. And we want to thank our viewers for joining us on this episode of Frequency Matters. Please watch for future episodes, whether by video or podcast. Thanks for joining us.